what was your golf score the last round you played? Before your shoulder was injured. Three under par. Ooh, three under par. That's what the professionals shoot, isn't it? Well, if they're lucky. Hello and welcome to episode one of the New Look Talk and Golf podcast. Thanks for tuning in as we begin what should be an exciting and hopefully educational journey exploring any and all facets of this endlessly intriguing game. My name's Rod Murray and each week myself and a cast of others will be bringing you a rotating menu of interviews and discussions touching on everything from golf course architecture and the general state of the game to the topic we'll be covering in today's first episode, the incredibly rich history of golf and what we can learn from it now and into the future. You can find out more about what we're doing at the newly launched Talk and Golf website, just the one G in Talk and Golf. Uh, that's talkandgolf.com. And I look forward to you coming back to enjoy and engage with some of the content that we will be producing. For the moment, though, it's on with today's episode. And before relaunching the Talk and Golf project, I had a look around at the seemingly bottomless pit of golf podcasts currently available. And the one glaring hole I could see was a show about the history of of the game. Now, history gets a bad rap, and most people associate it with boring lectures about dour old men in coats and ties who first knocked a ball around the links of Scotland. But just like the image of the game itself amongst non golfers, nothing could be further from the truth. When done right, golf's history is both fascinating and funny. And if you'll give us just a little bit of your time today, I plan to prove it. Who is this we that I'm talking about? Well, for those on Twitter, he goes by the tag of at S Historians, but in real life, his name is Connor T. Lewis, and he's not only a golf history buff, but an avid collector of golf memorabilia. Connor was a guest on our I Seek Golf podcast last year, and he proved quite a hit with the listeners. His brilliant takes on the history of the game are entertaining and educational. All of that meant that he was the obvious choice to co-host this monthly episode in this new Talking Golf uh, project, and to my eterning, eternal gratitude, he was enthusiastic to be a part of it when I So, Connor, welcome. For all the titles you've had in life, I'm guessing podcast co-host was the one that you've really been wanting to tick off the bucket list, so congrats for that, and a genuine thanks for agreeing to be part of this project. Absolutely my pleasure, and yes, I mean, it's a check off the bucket list. I had to write the bucket list today before <laughs> I checked that off, but yes, That's right. it is currently checked off. Yeah. Um, it's exciting stuff, Connor. As I said, we had you on the ISEC Gold Podcast, and we got terrific reaction to it. I think you've been a bit surprised at the response to your at S Historian's Twitter handle as well, haven't you? There's more interest in this subject when it's presented right than most of us realize. Yeah, when I first kicked that off, uh, which was what I think four months ago. So right now, um, and basically, right now, not to jinx it, it's growing about a thousand follows followers a month. Mm-hmm. And when I first launched it, uh, I thought maybe I'd have. I kind of made this joke before, but I, I thought I'd have maybe twenty people that followed it, and like, you know, ten would be family <laughs> members, and four would be me using like fake you know, Twitter handles, uh-huh. you know, and, and like really praising myself. Uh, so yeah, I've been a little surprised. I try to make it fun and uh, hope to obviously carry that over into the podcast. Uh-huh, indeed, as we will. Now, just to start out with, you won't find much more uh, sort of controversial and passionate people than people who are into the history of golf, will you? So from time to time, things can get a bit tetchy and people can get upset, but that's all to the good, isn't it? Because it means people are interested and want to be a part of it. So uh, I'm sure we'll get feedback at various times from people saying, oh, you got that <laughs> wrong and he only had three shots on that hole and that... But th- that's what it's all about is – and we're here to learn too, aren't we? I don't think anybody pretends to know everything. So um, we're hoping that we'll get a lot of listener engagement with this on Twitter and through your Facebook group, the Soci- Society of Golf Historians on Facebook, I think it is. 
Yes, that is correct. And uh, just remember, folks, if it doesn't sound right, I probably made it up. Yeah, <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> yeah, what was that? So I heard a great uh, uh, comedy guy doing a, a question asking, and so I said, "Yeah, what's this segment called?" And he said, "Yeah, well, it's you know, Eggsy's Egg, ask, ask Eggsy all of the questions, none of the answers." <laughs> That's right. Love it. Which is exactly right. So uh, it's exciting times. And we're kicking off this uh, Talk and Gold project. So once a month, we're going to do this history podcast, and we're going to take questions from listeners and ideas for topics and lots of feedback. So get involved on social media. That's the great thing about social media. You can find your niche. Uh, you find me on Twitter at, at Rod underscore Murray and Connor, at, of course, at S Historians. And I'll put the links to that in the show notes so people can follow along. But I thought we'd kick off uh, today, Connor, in episode number one with some of the basics. Some people might already know some of this stuff, but I doubt they'll know it quite the way you do. Some of the basic questions about golf and how we go. So we've got three whys to deal with. And we're going to start with why 18 holes? Why is it that when I go to play in the comp tomorrow at Mangrove Mountain, I'll be playing 18 holes of golf, even though it's only a nine-hole course. Want me to jump in? Yeah, jump in. It's, it's, oh, I tell you, it's, uh, you know, I, I put some thought into it. I put some thought into it before. I give speeches on the history of the game of golf, and there's always an easy answer and, like, the real answer, I suppose. So I'll, I'll dig in a little deeper than I would normally just uh, relaying the answer. So if you look at uh, the evolution of the game of the golf, if you go all the way back, about as far back as we can go, uh, it is widely believed that the first golf course was a place called Leith Links, which is right off the port of Edinburgh. Uh, Leith Links had only five holes. So you, first question is, you know, wow, we could just be playing five hole rounds, right? That'd be, or actually, to be fair, they'd play two loops of yep. ten. Um, yep. As a matter of fact, Rod, I think you've seen it. I have a scorecard actually right behind me on my desk, that is 10 holes at Leith Links. It's one of the oldest scorecards known to exist. Um, and the author of the scorecard, John Cundell, which who wrote uh, one of the original uh, books of the, of, of the rules of golf, uh, wrote disgraceful <laughs> on the scorecard because he averaged eight shots per hole. Clearly some, not a good day. So we, some things never change, Connor. That's right. <laughs> we know the standard was at least better than an 81 yeah. for, for 10. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put disgraceful. So you have the start of uh, a five-hole round or a ten-hole round on a five-hole course. The second oldest course, I believe, I think there's some conjecture, some debate on this, is Masabra Links or the old course at Masabra, which originally was seven holes. Uh, they added an eighth hole in 1838, and it wasn't until 1870 that they added the ninth hole. So think about that. That's ten years into the Open Championship. Wow. And then you have the mother of them all, uh, St. Andrews. Uh, when it originally opened, it was 22 holes, and it was so until 1764 when they decided to combine some holes into the current 18. So that gives you a little bit of the start of the early days of golf. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, fast forward into the late 1850s, Tom Morris builds Presswick, which held the first uh, Open Championships, and that was only a 12-hole course, oh, right. all the way up until 1884, which is 14 years into the Open Championship. I'm sorry, 24 years into the Open Championship, 12-hole course. Now, if we transport ourselves back, Connor, yeah. right here and now today, it would seem absurd to have a golf course that wasn't either 9 or 18 holes. We are so used to those two multiples being the norm for golf. But, of course, go way back to the Leaf Links. Why wouldn't it be 5 holes or 8 or 3 sure. or 12? Yeah. There's, there's no – at the very beginning, there's no reason to have anything other than whatever the land – 
demands or allows, is there? So you can see, and in fact, if, That's I, exactly. if I'm not mistaken, yeah. all golf courses were just different numbers of holes. There were five-hole courses and eight-hole courses, and some had 12 and some had four. It wasn't at all uncommon to go to a golf course and find. There certainly wasn't any notion that we're going here to play and that it will be 18 holes or nine holes. I, I'll tell you, I have a dream um, that, uh, you know, I, will it ever happen? Probably not, where I would, you know, take over a nine hole course with a lot of space, uh, maybe extra space and build a 12 hole course in the United States and call it the devil's dozen. I just, I love oh, that name. Nice. Yeah. Oh, right. How good would that be? Yeah. Uh, you're talking about, you know, do you want to play nine? Do you want to play 12? Um, I, I just like the idea of it. And of course we have, uh, one of my favorite golf courses I have yet to play, which I'm embarrassed to say was laid out by Willie Park, uh, junior. And that Shishkeen in Scotland is still has always been, a 12-hole course. Tom Coyne, and to me, that's, Tom Coyne oh, writes about I mean, it, doesn't he? He says it's his favorite golf course well, in the world. Yeah. I mean, it just get, it makes my heart go pitter-pat thinking about playing a 12-hole course like Prestwick once was. But yeah. and, you know what? I'll, I'll jump in here, Rod. Um, I told you a little bit about this last night, but I was doing some digging, and uh, a couple of us folks on Twitter were asking the question on uh, you know the different style of courses that held um, an, a, a major championship. And, uh, and I, you know the answer to this now, but the question that I posed was how many different majors were played on courses that were less than 18 holes? And the answer is, you remember? 24? 24. I can't believe it's, that. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it is unbelievable. Right? I mean, really, when I saw the number, I was like, that's wrong. I'm going to recount. There's no way. Uh, the breakdown is such. Um, there were 15 majors at Prestwick as a 12 hole golf course before they converted to 18. Mm -hmm. There were six majors held at must, which again, one of the oldest golf courses in the world, uh, before the open was stolen away from them in 1892. And that's another story for another podcast. One of my favorites. So just keep that on the back burner. Mm -hmm. Uh, then you have the first U S open at Newport country club in 1895. You have the 1898 U S open at myopia, which I believe in 1899 they expanded to 18, so it wasn't that far away. How, how many and then was, the last? How many were those two when they played those Newport? Those two were both nine. Nine yep. holes. Sorry, the first U.S. Open at Newport, nine holes. Uh -huh. uh, the 1898 U.S. Open at Myopia was nine holes, and then the last golf course to host or club to host a nine-hole uh, major championship was Baltimore Country Club in 1899. Right. So the trend ends 1899. And, we, you know, we become this basically an 18-hole uh, championship course will hold majors, right? So then the question is why, right? Yes. Uh, you asked that question, and this is kind of getting to it. And so I'm going to do something that almost every – not every. Uh, let's just say hardcore traditionalists hate it when I play the um, what if, <laughs> right? I, they really do. Like I, I put it on Twitter. It's like – what if, Ooh. like, let's go down the rabbit hole. What if this happened? Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the hardcore, I get it. Uh, I love history as much as anybody, but I love playing the what ifs, right? And the question is this. What if in 1870, young Tom Morris doesn't win three opens in a row and retire the championship belt, right? So in 1870, young Tom Morris wins three open champions in a row, he retires the championship belt, right, which was played for before the Claret Jug. Mm -hmm. The Open is suspended for a year, uh, essentially because there is no trophy uh, anymore. The, it's been it's gone. We need a new trophy. And out of that uh, came a partnership between Musabra, Prestwick, and St. Andrews. 
to host the open and it would be a, a, the first rota, right? Mm-hmm. So the question is, so you're playing all these years um, on a 12 hole course, the open championship, the most important championship, the first championship, the mold that started majors on a 12 hole course. What if, again, sorry, history folks, I hate to do this to you, but what if young Tom doesn't win that third mm. and it, continues to be played on a 12-hole course. How long does it continue on a 12-hole course is the first part of the question, right? Yes. And the second part is, if the if the rotation does not go to St. Andrews, is the is an 18-hole standard still the standard today? Is, is its influence I the same? The, the old course, yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I don't – I honestly – I put a lot of thought into it. Mm. I'd like to think – I'd like to think that we might have – a more proportionate share of nine hole, 12 hole and 18 hole golf courses. Mm. That's what I'd like to think. I don't know that though. Yeah. It, well, of course the reason they're great questions, Connor is because you can't possibly know the answers and that's the main no, ingredient it, for a great question, isn't it? There is no answer and therefore yeah. you can argue about it endlessly. There's a, there's a lovely symmetry to 9, 18, 12, 6 that you don't get with 5 and 10, isn't there, with a decimal sort of system. There's something appealing about yeah. that. And it, it's an unspoken thing, but there is something appealing, isn't there, about 9 and 18 holes. And, and I think we could fit 12 holes um, yeah. back in. And it would be to the good of golf if we went back to an idea of – well, I know I've talked, spoke, spoken about this before. There's an Icelandic golf course architect who's one of my favorite people in the world called Edwin Roald, and he runs a website called why18holes.com where he goes through all of this. And he says that this obsession with 18 holes mostly, and if not that, then it's got to be at least nine, leads to a lot of bad golf because you squeeze yeah. golf courses into land where it doesn't fit or you stretch golf into land where it doesn't really fit rather right. than starting with the common sense position, which would be how many good golf holes can we build on this piece of land, which should be the ultimate goal because the better the golf, the more popular the game, it seems to me. So if you build bad golf holes just to get from 16 to 18 or whatever, it was, so you can say you've got an 18-hole golf course, you're doing the game a disservice. Yeah. You know? So I anyway, agree. Yeah. So, so, uh, let me, so I'm going to finally answer your question, why 18 holes? Why 18 okay, holes, I'm going to go yes. right to it. So ultimately it comes down to the most imitated golf course that ends up dictating the path to the future. And really you can probably, if you want to pinpoint one person probably – like so many answers to the olden days, you could probably put it on old Tom Morris, mm-hmm. who is, of course, one of our earliest architects who was asked to build 18 uh, hole golf courses like the old course at St. Andrews, which was, uh, you know, by what, 1880s, 1890s, considered kind of a gold standard. It's still copied to this day, when whether it's a template or whether it's uh, an everyday golf course that's using um, the strategy put forth by the old course. And so old Tom went around Scotland, Ireland, England, and designed 18-hole golf courses. He was kind of the Johnny Appleseed, if you will, of 18-hole golf courses. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know of any golf courses that he built where they were 12 holes other than Presswick. I might be wrong on that. I'm willing to take that. Uh, but more often than not, it was an 18-hole golf course. There's a... There's a lovely symmetry about that, isn't there? Because obviously there was something about the 18 that worked. So you know, had, had he built. 15 hole courses and people didn't like it maybe things would have would have changed it but it's basically just the influence they were saying nobody at any point sat down and said golf should be 18 holes for these reasons it was just an influence that that it sort of grew it's because golf's really a game of 
um, what's the word I'm like? Convention, isn't it? You sort of follow convention. Sure. That, that's that's how golf rules and laws and these sorts of things happen. It's convention. So if the old course is 18, we want to be 18. If we can't be 18, we want to be 9, not 12. And I, I guess if you're going to say it is if there's one course in the world that you want to copy, it's not a bad choice. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, <laughs> in fact we could do with a lot more people copying yeah. and taking uh, what we see at the old course. Uh, everyone pays lip service to it, but uh, not everybody – not everybody follows it. So by what kind of period do you think we are a dedicated 9 and 18 hole culture? Because most people playing the game, Ooh. many would not have even ever considered this question. They've just grown up knowing that golf is 18 holes. Well, I, I think it's pretty safe to say you take Shishkin out of the picture. You are pretty much um, converted to an 18 hole 9 or right around 1884. 1884. I think that that's, that's when uh, Presswick makes the change to an 18 hole golf course. Yep does a complete redesign of which, you know, there are a couple of holes out there that still exist in the, in the old form. Um, but I think that's probably a, a fair share at that point. You're yep. 24 years into the open championship, uh, you know, 24 year or, you know, you're into the British amateur. And, and um, I, I think that just became the staple. I think, and then you look at 1892 um, Muirfield being another standard uh, as it opens up into the open rota. Uh, as an 18-hole golf course and sets, you know, another st- staple of design, which was then, uh, you know, copied over and over like many others. Yep. So certainly by the early 20th century, it's a it's a given. Golf is an 18-hole game. Championship golf is a 72-hole test for the most part. Uh, and that's what we still have have today. Yeah. It's kind of sad, right? Is that sad? I mean, to me, it's kind of sad. Uh, like, I, I just wish yes. we had some sort of variety. Like, I hear people, oh, on Twitter – uh, or on the Facebook page, and um, or just in general, where they say it's not golf unless it's eighteen holes. Oh, and I, I just want to like grab them, right? <laughs> just want to grab them and say, you know, you don't get it. I mean, the, you you don't need fourteen clubs. I mean, that's a different subject, obviously. You don't need fourteen clubs. You don't need to keep score. Take a walk in the park here. Ooh, don't right? start. Don't start on the score. We'll get, know, we'll, we'll get letters for sure. <laughs> for some people, I suppose I'd, I'd say it this way, Connor. This is this is my answer to that generally, and it's it's a shame that of all the sports and recreations that people can choose, golf is the one that allows by far the most freedom. There are no straight lines. There are some boundaries, of course. You know, you've got out of bounds on a golf course, but for the most part, golf is an extremely free form sort of sport. You can choose to play with three clubs or 14 you can choose to play with clubs that are 150 years old or a week old you can choose to play by yourself or with others you can choose to play in a competition or just social golf there all of this free form sort of golf if some of that was to leach into what we do competitively i think the game would be better off i was listening to jeff ogilvy yesterday on uh, andy johnson's podcast talking about foursomes in scotland even foursomes in scotland from what he was describing is completely i've not played it but from what he was describing it's basically a two and a half hour game where you know unlike what we do when we play foursomes where you know all four people walk to the tee and all four people walk down to the ball they don't do it like that in scotland it's a much more free form sort of thing and that so the score and the obsession with scoring and that's kind of the industry of golf. I don't feel like it's the soul of golf. And the great golf, mo- or my great golf moments, because I'm not a particularly good golfer, have generally come not in competitions, but in golf experiences that I've shared with mates, be it at Barnboogle yeah. Dunes or, you know, a friendly nine-hole match play on a Friday afternoon or a summer's evening at 5.30, 6 o'clock. Those are the things that are really, really fantastic about golf. And competition golf is just one part. And that's not to belittle competition golf or people who really like 
competition golf and can't see anything else, but it's a bit of a shame in some ways. I do think people miss out if all they're interested in is counting the score and making sure they've got the latest 14 clubs and, and a GPS rangefinder. Much of it's got nothing to do with golf. That's my take on it. It's uh, they're yeah. all additives. You know, and that, Rod, that was me until, me uh, two, until 2008. Uh, 2008, I'd say my love for history took me into playing, you know, clubs that were 100 years old, um, for a, uh, what, six years, and then I played another two years of just playing clubs from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea behind it was really more study than the practicality of it. I just wanted, if I wanted to really know about history, uh, I guess my thought was I kind of had to live it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, not you can, like, and you can. Uh, someone, it's a great thing about golf. Yeah, it's all available. And get, go ahead and, and get and yourself. more so nowadays. Yeah, get yourself yeah. a set of hickories and, and go play. There's no problem with yeah, it. Or, Originally, it was more difficult to play what you'd call gutty golf, which is golf from the uh, you know eighteen ninety nine back, uh, because you, obviously you wouldn't want to play an original uh, gutta percha golf ball. Uh, but then there were a couple guys out there, a couple of companies that were starting to make uh, real gutta percha golf balls. Uh, Doc Brown and McIntyre Golf, uh, to name a, a couple. They still, where you could still doing that. Buy. I believe they are. Uh, Doc Brown, uh, Dr. David Brown, by the way, uh, not named after the Open champion at Musselboro, uh, though I'd like to think so. I don't know if he's related, but I'll keep telling people he is until <laughs> I find out otherwise. Yeah. Is a orthopedic surgeon in Omaha, Nebraska. Cool. Uh, and he acquired uh, uh, McIntyre Golf, uh, which uh, Chris McIntyre out of California founded, a lover of history and old uh, golf play. And uh, – Basically started making gutta percha golf balls, and I, I can't imagine there's a ton of profit in it. You wouldn't think, uh, but it's amazing. It's I mean, if you can do it, you got to do it. Mm. It's it's just it's otherworldly. Instead of hitting the ball, you know, uh, you know, let's say for me with a modern driver, I hit the ball to about 280 yards with a hickory ball or with uh, hickories like 1920s. I can still hit the ball about 250 yards. You pull out a, a long nose driver and a gutty, it goes 180 yards. Yep. Yeah. And that scares people, right? That really scares people. They're like, oh, I have no interest in that. Well, you know, you're playing shorter courses, right? You're playing it way up. Heck, sometimes you play from the fairway. And there's no such thing as par, which is quite freeing. Par yeah. did not exist. And so there's, a, I, I think, a freeing. And, and I think that leads to me, even when I play modern clubs today, um, up until recently, I'd say now oh, 50% of my rounds, I don't even keep score. I just enjoy the shot. Like, I have a pretty good idea what I shot. I mean, it's not hard to rethink the round, but it's just freeing when I'm focusing on, you know, the architecture of the golf course or, you know, the clouds moving in the distance or the birds in the background or or having a a good conversation with a buddy walking down a hole. And I think there's a little bit of that that loss. Yeah. I think the score thing comes from those who don't think about the architecture. There's a lot of people who just – but they play golf shots. They don't play golf per se, as sort of I would describe. Sure. That, that sounds a bit arrogant on my part. But if all you're yeah, focused we've all on, been there, yeah, right? that, that's right. But once you start to think about the playing field and why it's laid out the way it is, I think that the the score part does become less important. It's more about what are the questions this course is asking me, and do I have an answer? Yeah. So the joy is in hitting the low running draw to get near that back flag, rather than whether you three punted from there. Do you know what I mean? So in a, in a stroke round, if you hit the low yeah. running draw to, to 12 feet and then you three-putt it in a stroke round, oh, I can't believe it, I've made a bogey. <laughs> but when you're just thinking about the golf course and the questions it's asking, you hit the five iron, that's it. That, that's the joy, that's the success. 
I've, I've done yeah. what I was supposed to do. And then I three-parted, but, you know, who really cares? I, hit, I did the difficult part. I did what I wanted to do, which was hit the low-running draw. And that's kind of the difference, I feel like. It's the focus about yeah, I agree with that. What, what makes success and sort of, uh, sort of what doesn't. Um, let's move on because there's loads of things to get through. So, as I said, we're, we're trying to deal with the basics. Why is the hole four and a quarter inches? What a great question. I wish I knew that one was coming. No. Um, <laughs> I, should, I should have let you know yesterday, shouldn't I? Oh, that's all right. Um, you know, I love this story. So it, it, this is going to be um, a different kind of answer I'm going to give you. So there, there is an answer. There are actually two people that you can point to. Uh, and I, I suppose I'll start with that, but then I'll, ask, I'll get into uh, the bigger question is why, right? Mm-hmm. So it all starts off at Royal Musabra. We have the, the minutes of Royal Musabra where Sergeant Scott is asked, in quotation marks, to pay more attention to forming of holes, to the forming of golf holes in 1829, right? So Sergeant Scott goes out, and he employs uh, a gentleman whose name is either Robert Gray or Robert Gay. (laughs) I have found it 50% of the time one way and 50% of the other. So for the purposes of this discussion, we'll call him Mr. Gray, who is a blacksmith in Musabra, who basically was, wasn't given a whole lot of direction in the size of the hole. He was a golfer. It was just, you know what, help us figure this out. And so the answer came in two parts. Uh, one would be a hole liner, and the other one would be the hole cutter. And so for the grand cost of one pound, uh, Robert Gray, the blacksmith, built the first ever hole cutter, and the liner for the hole was the Musabra drain pipe, the common Musabra drain pipe, which was four and a quarter inches wide. And so when you really think about it, it's practicality. He's using something that is readily available yeah, to use for the lining the hole and doing it. Now, the greater part of that, right, the real question why is why did they regulate it? Well, right? that's right. It's a simple, what yeah. happened before? What were people doing for a golf hole before? Exactly. And it's a simple case of fairness, as odd as that sounds. And I, we touched on this in the, in the last podcast, but I think it's, it's worth touching on again. And to do this, I'm going to go through a couple of the different rulings over a 73-year period over what constitutes the teen area for a golf tee, right? And so where is the teen ground once you finish a hole? So in 1802 uh, – the tee, you were supposed to tee up your ball within one club length of the hole. Wow. So your tee ground is actually the green. Yes. And so imagine, folks, uh, there were no golf tees. Golf tees really weren't popularized until 1915, 1920. Uh, they were invented, of course, 1899 by an African-American dentist. Um, but that's another story. Uh, but so – to tee the ball up, you would use wet sand. So you'd take wet sand, you'd make a little pile that was condensed enough that you could fit a, a golf ball, back then a feathery, then a gutta percha, and then a wound haskell. Uh, but you'd fit that ball on top of it, and you'd tee off. And it'd be, in at least in 1802 or prior to that, would be one club length from the hole. Mm-hmm. So where are you going to find this wet sand? Right? It's fairly simple. You're going to have to go underground. So... What you do is you'd finish a hole, you'd stick your hand down in the hole and grab wet sand, right, which the lynx lend, much mostly sand right underneath the grass. You'd scoop out some wet sand from the bottom of the hole, and you'd tee your ball up one length, and you'd hit, and you'd play. So as the day goes on, 
right? As we've discussed before, the hole would get bigger, mm-hmm. right? Because let's face it, not everyone's going to be kind and pull it right out of the bottom. There's going to be a bunch of lazy guys named Rod and Connor, and they're <laughs> going to pull it out of the sides of the hole because, you know, gosh darn it, that hole's starting to get about two feet deep because we had a lot of play today. So that's why. That's the why. So we go into 1802, right? And now the, the distance from clubbing, it, uh, from teeing it up is now two club lengths from the hole. Thank and you very much. And what was the much. thinking of that, Imagine, Connor? Why, why was it suddenly two club you lengths? Know, I think, you? Yeah, I think what you're going to see, so these are various clubs. They're not all the same clubs. It's not just the RNA. This is just a trend through time. And my guess is as you see it expand is that – can you imagine, by the way, uh, putting – over a teenager, right? I mean, Connor and Rod are out there schlubbing through. You know, we hit the ground before we hit the sand. And all of a sudden, you're the hardest place, the one place you expect to make that putt, yep. three feet from the hole, <laughs> you know, 10 club marks, you know, from some schlubs like us digging into it. Yeah. So I think, you know, as we see it, so 1802, it's cl- two club lengths. 1812, uh, St. Andrews adopts the two club length rule. So for those, you know, all wait from the 1400s to all the way to 1812, it's one club length. Thank goodness they give them some room of relief. So we're six feet away now. On uh, 1824, we make a, another 10-year jump, and this is at Leith Links. Uh, the clubbing distance is, or the teen distance is two to six clubs oh, from the hole okay. at Leith Links. In 1829, St. Andrews follows, and we're now not quite two to four club lengths. So now, I mean, just imagine. So two to four club lengths. You'd think you'd be providing relief when, in fact, you're just expanding the area of the green uh, that's being destroyed. Dug up. That's right. So everywhere from, you know, six to 12 feet is a minefield of schlubs like us yeah. making fat contact with the ball. Um, so then fast forward 30 years. Right now we're in 1858. St. Andrews is now six to eight clubs. So, again, eight club lengths. That's 24 feet. Right, and are 20, you, yeah. Do we know? Feet. Have we got, that's, that's a putt. Have we got T yeah. markers yet, or are we taking the club and tending it end no, over end no, until we get to eight? We are still literally on the green. Right. We are on the green in 1858. Okay. You're measuring uh, it with then, the club to to get your six or eight, or yeah, I suppose. And so, yeah, and yeah. then 1875, we're eight. Even all the way 1875, we're eight to twelve club lengths de- dictated by the RNA. Right. So if you think that, so. Go. I mean, if you look at this, this is where I get just crazy. Uh, when you think about this, you go all the way to 1882. So now we're 22 years into the Open Championship, right? 22 years. The RNA in 1892 defined the green, right? The green itself mm-hmm. as an area around the hole within two yards. <laughs> greens were so a six-yard circle. No greens, no greens in, in regulation Four prior to 1882 circle, yeah. unless wow. you stuffed one. Right. And then after 1882. Right. So that was everything prior to 1882 were two yards after 1882. The green is considered within 20 yards of the hole. So then we're getting really into, you know, 60 feet. We're getting into a a plausible green Mm -hmm. um, where that comes into play. So, yeah, it's it's kind of an amazing um, look at the evolution of the hole. Yeah. And the impact and, and that has that. on everything else. I mean, uh, yeah. you, you could make the link pretty directly that digging your hand in the hole and making a mess of it led to the tee being separate to the green. Which absolutely. is a fundamental part of the game, isn't it? That the, there's a defined tee and a defined green. I want to go back a bit, Connor, and you may not have an answer yeah, to this, yeah. but 
Back when we were sticking our hand in the hole and putting out, what was the hole originally? When did we? Because the unique part of golf, and there's an argument about the you know the the evolution of golf, what it started from, and there've been other games depicted in paintings from before the Absolutely. the sort of Scottish start of golf of people hitting. But the, the the true difference of golf is the hole being the target Absolutely. at the end of it is the it is the one the definer. So yeah, when does the hole start, and what is the hole? Is it a rabbit scrape? Who comes up with who says hey? You know, instead of just rolling it up near this stick here, let's get a hole. And what does the original hole look like? Do we know? I know we do not. So we're assuming this is so. There's not a great. I mean, there's no written record from the 1400s, which is when we believe the game of golf started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe it started, or I believe it started at Leith Links on the port of Leith. Um, uh, it is my belief. This is not fact. We're going to get letters for sure about this. Oh, this will get it. I mean, Peter Kessler is going to cuss me out for this part. I know it. Him and John Evans will start at it again on Twitter. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I'm willing to accept that because I think um, I, 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 for one, believe there's some factual evidence, but none more than that. And, And let me say before I even go there that golf is a Scottish game. That's the whole defines the game of golf that makes it different than any other stick and, stick and ball. ball sport yep. ever played. So golf is Scotland. Scotland started golf. Um, so I'm saying that right off the top of my head right now, just for the record. So the hate mail can at least stick to that. But I believe that the game evolved from Colvin. Sorry, Peter, um, <laughs> which was a stick and ball game played above ground to a stick, sometimes on ice, sometimes on land. Yeah. Uh, often a winter sport. Uh, I think there is enough evidence. I think Charles Blair McDonald would agree with me, by the way, uh, with the uh, deft tiles that he had uh, in well, the logo of National uh, Golf Links of America, by the way, is the game of Colvin being played. Um, but I think it's easy enough to draw the lines in the trade going through the Edinburgh port with the Dutch, with the Netherlands, that the game of Colvin was introduced to the folks in Scotland Mm -hmm. and that they basically took the ball and stick game and invented their own, which involved a hole. Now that I've heard stories that it was rabbit. I've heard rabbit holes. And I I think that's on the links. I think that's a a pretty strong case Mm. that, you know, maybe there was a post in the ground. Some guy rolled one in the hole and said, Hey, this is a little different. Let's try this. Yeah. Yeah, There's another, you know, little factoid, another little point of contention for this game if we try to get it in this hole rather than hit the stick from, you know, 500 yards away. And then I suppose that begs the second question is when do we start moving the hole around as a target? So today yeah. you watch golf and on Thursday you have the Thursday pins and the Friday yeah. pins and the Saturday pins. When do we start to move the hole? Do we know? Yeah, I, I don't have – yeah, so like on the on the green that, you know, uh, two-yard uh, – <laughs> Yes, does, two yards does the, the, the four-yard circle move at any point, or is yeah, it just the it, same you know, four-yard circle? That, yeah, that little you know two-yard uh, <laughs> circle has to move. We're always moving the green, right? Imagine that. That's an architect's nightmare. Uh, we're going to move the green every day. Yeah. My guess is, and I, I don't have facts on this, my guess is that it was moved not on a daily basis. It was moved likely out of necessity of a hole getting too large. And the ground getting um, chewed up around but, it from all that teeing right? from the fat shots. But I'll be honest with you. I think it became much more commonplace after 1829 and there was a device to cut a hole. Yeah. Then it became easy. You could cut and fill with the same device. So in many ways, Robert Gray's 
unique invention, which, by the way, has not changed a ton. If you go out and see your local uh, superintendent changing the holes, uh, it is not that much different than the device that he used in, or devised in 1829, which is you know, kind of genius in his own right. Yeah, circular sharp implement. You push it down into the ground, it pulls out a plug of grass, and you've got a nicely formed hole. Do, right. Do we know, just on the whole, when do we introduce the flag? So in 1756, are we standing on a tee 260 yards away from the golf hole? Do we know where the golf hole is, or is it only that we know because we played before? Is there, is there a flag in it yet? Is there some sort of marker to indicate where the hole is yet? Do we know when that started? Yeah, I have read uh, quite a few different uh, takes on this, not as far back as the 1700s, but I've heard of holes being marked with a feather, which can you imagine, you know, hitting to a feather from 100 yards? <laughs> on a, on a um, breezy Scottish any, links, it doesn't seem like the most sensible no way kidding, for right? it, does it? Well, even in modern, or not modern times, I'd call it modern times if you consider the game from the 1400s and call modern times 1800s, but I kind of do, the modern era of golf. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Right. I mean, you're, you know, a couple hundred years in, uh, but you can look at, I have paintings in my office. I'm looking at them right now where, uh, the golf hole is, uh, not much bigger than what we would consider to be a, um, green or a putting green flag hole, right. You know, like a little three foot high. Oh, okay. Yeah, little, little one. Yeah. A lot of times they'd use a stick mm-hmm. where they just kind of stick it in. Uh, so the, I would say the flagstick itself, and I'm probably wrong on this one, but I'd say the flagstick itself is relatively new. And if I would call it new, I would say new in the open champ- championship era of golf. Let's call that 1860 to today. Kind of evolved to what we have now. Because other flag, than that, I think it was mix and match. It's a bit of genius, really, isn't it? When you think about it, the flag, a stick with a flag on it, so that it'll flutter around. You can see it from almost any distance, can't you? It's, oh yeah, it's, it's quite inventive. I mean, I mean, you can imagine how we'll stick a stick in there, but from four hundred yards away, a stick can disappear into the background. But you put a little flag on it, waving around in the breeze. Well, now you've got something that is a genuine sort of. Uh, I mean, what are the, What are the chances that feather sticks around in Scotland? Oh. <laughs> Someone's going to scoop it up and make a golf ball out of it, aren't they? You have a moving target all of a sudden as that feather's flying out there. Of course, you only had a six-foot green, so you know. I guess you're moving for that, too. That's right. Did I hit a duck or have I holed out there? I can't tell. That's right. It's hard to tell from uh, from all the way back here. It would be – I'm trying to put myself in that time, Connor, just before we move on. Another question. What an extraordinary game. Would we have been grabbed by that? See, this goes to the essence of golf, doesn't it? Is it – the intriguing and fascinating game and the compelling game that we see today, is it that when it's a rudimentary club and a much more rudimentary ball and a feather on the ground? It must be because it survived, didn't it? Oh. Well, you know, you're talking to a guy that played, you know, only uh, pre-1900 golf for a couple of years. And I can tell you it was fantastic. Uh, you know, we're going to have another discussion point where I kind of jump into the why, uh, but it's just a matter of perspective, yeah. right? How far you hit the ball, I guess this would get into a ball debate, but how far you hit the ball is only relative to how far people can hit the ball. Yeah. Right? I mean, if, if I'm hitting the ball 180 yards and the hole is, uh, I mean, gosh, it, almost any hole over 330 yards would, even though the term did not exist, is considered a par five. It's a three shot. It's all relative. Yeah. It's all re- Yeah, it's a three shotter, right? Um, but you know, before we move on though, I think it's interesting to note. So I've kind of hit this, you know, this first golf hole, the four and the quarter, the first ever, like 1829. 
you would think that that would have been adopted, right? Like, oh, wow, that's a great idea. Let's have this, take this invention and we'll use it all over Scotland. We'll use it all over England. We'll take it to India, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We'll take it to Australia and all these outer parts of the world with this hole cutter. Not so. And that's the most <laughs> remarkable thing. Right? I mean, it was, it was still Scotland um, was still a very, um, it was environment of villages, mm-hmm. right? And because of that, these innovations didn't always chase across the country. So I want you to think about this. Um, from 1829 to 1891. So 1829, we have Musabra, we have Robert Gray and Sergeant Scott uh, coming up with this standard, at least at Musabra, for four and a quarter inches. How long would that take to become a standard? The norm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how long? The answer is 60, 62 years. <laughs> Wow. 60, 60, so 1891, 1891, the four and a quarter inches becomes law by the RNA. The 1891, that's, that is 31 years into the Open Championship. And, in and I that found it, this just – yeah, go ahead. So in that intervening period, it's my understanding that courses most adopted some kind of a jig and a tool to cut the hole and, and give it a liner, but that they weren't all a standard size. So I think – my memory is that Canoosti was known as a course of smaller cups, and St Andrews was a course. No, actually, of I was it the other way around. Carnoustie was at five. Carnoustie was a five-inch right. hole, so it was a big hole. Course. Um, it was, yeah. Thank goodness. I think it could use a bigger yeah. hole today. <laughs> so was, there'll be people out there playing right now who'd wish the hole was five inches. That's right. Let's go to eight there, maybe. Yeah. Um, in eighteen fifty-eight, I found this: the Historical Dictionary of Golf Terms cites in eighteen fifty-eight. Uh, not common, but often used a six six inch golf hole. My so goodness. think about that. That's 1958, 1858. Sorry, 1858. And even like even let's let's fast forward it, right? Let's go another. You know, from that becoming a regulation, let's go another 40 years. You have in uh, 1932, uh, Gene Sarazen started a marketing campaign for larger uh, for a larger golf hole, and he went. Across the country to the AP, writing articles, trying to get pros to join him um, on this marketing campaign of expanding the golf hole. Uh, ben Hogan, I think, is well known. Uh, while he never technically argued for it, um, he believed that the that putting was a disproportionate value to scoring, mm-hmm. and that in having a larger hole, that would even up the skill of the game versus you know something. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but let's say some people thought as an inferior piece of the game, it should not carry 50% of your strokes. Well, how did, how, sorry, firstly, how big did Sarazen want to make it? What was the campaign for? What was the size he wanted to go you to? You know, I, I, I read um, four articles uh, last night on it, and none of the articles is he specific about okay, size. So just a bigger hole than four. That might be five He's just six, arguing or, for a larger hole. A so. You know, maybe maybe it's a five inch hole, maybe it's a six. I don't imagine he's saying eight by any standard. You wouldn't but, think so, no. And but I think it's extremely interesting that here we have, uh, you know, Grand Slam champion, yeah. uh, actually out there in his prime. I mean, you know, uh, 1932 he won the Open Championship and the U.S. Open. So it, it's not like he was a schlub in the game at the time, right? He wins, you know, two of the three majors at the time, and four if you count the Western Open, which we won't. Not to get into that argument, um, but you know, he was you know, a big deal. And he wins two majors and here he is, despite winning two majors, arguing for a larger hole. I think that's fascinating to so me. So here's the question. Has he got a point? 
Do he and Hogan have a point? How different might the game look had we adopted a hole that was a little bit larger? Is is the skill of great ball striking, and we look at Hogan as sort of the guy, is that a superior skill to punt? I suppose it's a, it's a question of judgment, isn't it? Some will tell you that yeah. the beauty of the game you know, is that they're weighted equally, I suppose, yeah. in some way. Well, I, my answer is it depends on how I putted that day. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. But it's an intriguing notion, isn't it? I mean, at all of these little points, when you think about the ramifications of golf taking a different direction, it's a bit like a stone in a pond, isn't it? The concentric circles that start to come out. And, and, and had we not gone for a, a four and a quarter inch hole at this time, fast forward at 100 years, and the game would be a completely different kettle of fish. It's extraordinary, isn't it? These, these little moments in history that probably didn't even seem that important at the time. It was just, oh, well, we really should formalize this. Let's make the whole four and a quarter inches. We all agreed. Yep, done. That could have been well, so, so different. Point, and to your point... I mean, 1829, 1891, it really wasn't that big of a deal for the longest time. No. I mean, you can go that long without a standard. Standard home. To me, that's – I mean, I, I look at those numbers. I, I remember when I first wrote them down on paper or put them out in a tweet, and I was like, you know, I better double-check those facts. <laughs> you know, because that, there's no way that's right. Yeah. And then, of course, it was. And it's, I mean, it's even more fascinating, right? Well, it's a game of villages back well, then. Exactly. For so long, you don't have an authority, do you? You don't have a governing body of the game. Uh, people are kind of making it up themselves. There's this loose notion of what golf is, but there's a lot of the little details are just made up on your own, aren't they? And imagine all sorts of things. I mean, when did we start seeing things like drops and out of bounds? And it's a long time before that becomes part of the game, isn't it? For a very long time, it's just wherever yeah. you've hit it, you go find it. And you hit it again. <laughs> That's right. Or your ball breaks and you're going to play the largest part of the ball into the hole. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I'll give you, if you've ever played, so if, if you ever get into, you know, God forbid, uh, playing gutta percha golf, uh, pre-1900 gutty golf, uh, you may play or may want to play in the National Hickory Championship. By the way, I hosted my own tournament called the All-American Hickory Open. And you play with... Equipment from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. You play with gutta percha golf balls. You play. As a matter of fact, I have it right here. Oddly enough, right before I started the podcast, it's kind of a keepsake of mine. I have the rules of golf, the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St Andrews, 1888, right next to me. Mm-hmm. And every player in my tournament would get this handbook, and you'd say, "These are the rules we're playing by." So in the National Hickory Championship, Pete Georgetti started that. By the way, shout out to Pete. Um, you play by the rules of golf. Uh, dictated by that tournament, and in that tournament, if your ball breaks, you will play the largest part of that ball to the hole. <laughs> and so playing the first uh, – no, that's not true. Playing one of the oldest golf courses in the United States, Oakhurst Links, 1884, um, which, by the way, I believe is shut down, which is a travesty is to a me. Greenbrier bought it, and I think the idea was that the Greenbrier was going to – not restore it, but keep it as a historical artifact of days past and allow golf only with gutta percha clubs, only with gutta percha, so you could experience yes, do that. golf in the early days. Yeah. Oh, and it, it do was that. So, it That's was the right thing to do, yes. There, Rod, they had sheep on the course. Oh. Those were your lawnmowers. Yeah. The first cut of rough, by the way, at Oakhurst was as it was, was three feet. <laughs> three feet was the first cut. <laughs> So somebody, I believe on the second hole, which would have been – there wasn't a par, of course, but we'd call it a, a, a two-shotter, so a par four. Um, somebody took a 22. Nice. I believe that's the record for the par four uh, because his ball broke and he had to play the largest portion of his gutta percha <laughs> down the fairway. The poor soul, right? 
I can't even imagine. Uh, I mean, I'd be crying at a 22. Yeah, it's golf. Um, I, still, I think, is the record. <laughs> Suck it up, Bruce. And then the greens, by the way, the greens at Oakhurst, uh, I think, rolled to like a, oh, gosh, it was four. like a three. Yeah, three or no, four. No, it was really bad. Yeah. So they, they said the hardest three-footers in the world, like a three-footer felt, felt like a 15-footer. Yeah. And so to practice for the tournament, I would putt in the fairways of my country club yeah, and, and assume that was about the roll of the green. I think that was probably a little fast. A little bit too fast. Probably a little bit too smooth as well. Yeah. Now, think about this, Connor, and I'll yeah. guarantee you I'm going to hear this tomorrow when I go to play at my local club. Somebody will <laughs> complain about a lie in a bunker. Oh. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and it wasn't yeah. that long ago. If your ball broke, find the biggest piece and finish the hole with that. <laughs> <laughs> and they're yeah, complaining. It wasn't even that long ago. That's right. It wasn't even that long ago we had rakes, yeah. right? Charles Blair McDonald, I believe, uh, was quite fun. I believe he wrote about it in uh, Scotland's Gift, which weirdly enough is to my left here, that uh, his preference would to start every day by taking a herd of elephants and having them <laughs> run through every bunker in the course, that a bunker should be a hazard. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think, and in, in, to that point, I will give a shout out to one of my favorite clubs, Oak uh, Oakmont, who on the 14th hole on the left side of the green has the furrowed bunkers, which were the original rakes that they had at, uh, at Oakmont. With uh, I don't know, it was like three or four inch gaps between the spokes uh-huh. of the rake. Yeah. So it created, you know, these furrows that your ball would then sit in. And personally, uh, I have an affinity for for Oakmont, but. Um, Nothing speaks to my heart like that one bunker on the left with furrowed bunkers because though they only have it on one hole and though they will likely never have it in a an, in U.S. Open, um, it speaks to the game's history, which pulls on my heartstrings. Well, so I, it, I would say that to your, yeah, to your friends. Like, puts it in perspective. Let's run too, through the it? bunker before you play it. Yeah, puts it in yeah. perspective. You look at that and you go, wow, you know, we really are kind of soft the way we play the game oh, in this day. I remember Nicholas did that at the Memorial a few years ago. He had the, the rakes yeah. with the wide tines and the bitching from the pros was out of control. I think it only lasted oh, one yeah. year. And, and, uh, and, they, and, they and I don't it. think that created the furrows that Oakmont has. I mean, no. they were just different, no. right? And they didn't want different. Yeah, let's not get into uh, that. We will come to some of the, the the effect of professional golf over time on golf. We will talk about it in various episodes, and I'm sure we'll get questions along those lines. But for the moment, let's move on to our last why for today, because I've just made a note of the time. And the thing about history is you can talk about it forever. Ha ha. Why 14 clubs, Connor? This is another oh, thing we just accept, yeah. don't we? The, the rules of golf say you can have 14 clubs. How, how long has it been the case that we could have 14 clubs, and what was the situation before so I put some, and, and you know this, but I put some real thought and, and you know, uh, there's a lot of things sometimes is even as a, a golf historian that you take for granted because you hear over and over and over. Um, so I've been placing the blame on the wrong person all these years, um, which I'm going to apologize to him and his family here shortly. Uh-huh. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that owe him an apology because I think it's, you say it so many times it becomes a fact. And that's a problem, by the way. In golf history. In all history, is, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, in all history, yeah. thank you. I only focus on that one part, obviously. But um, you say it over and over. So if you go back not even that long, you go back 50 years, some of the things that we just take for granted because um, you know we've heard it so many times, not to jump off topic here, but um, that Hogan's one iron at Marion was the greatest shot I'd ever hit. I mean, I don't know if you saw that Twitter blip I put out there, and I said he hit it to like 35 feet. Yeah. From you know roughly 200 yards, mm. um, that was a, a fantastic shot. He ended up making a two putt, 
and he, he went into a playoff, which he won. But it's can we call that the greatest shot? No, it's the greatest photograph, perhaps, of Absolutely. all time. There's your debate. Yeah. But we've heard it, we've heard it, we've heard it, and now we're reciting it as the greatest shot ever hit. So many times things happen, and this is going to be one of them. So prior to 1936, so 1936 is our uh, mark of demarcation. Um, a player could carry as carry in play as many clubs as they wanted. And uh, I've heard the theory, lots of theories, and the pointing of fingers. And here's here's what I'm going to give you. I gave this, put some real thought into it beyond thought I'd you know had put in before. But here is the evolution of the number of golf clubs, according to Connor Lewis. So from the 1400s, the earliest days of golf, to 1900, few golfers used more than seven to eight clubs. You take a look at any photograph or any painting uh, from 1899 all the way back. You look at the clubs of Harry Varden and J.H. Taylor and uh, Tom Morris and young Tom Morris. It's very hard to find more of the seven to eight clubs that, that their caddy is carrying. And... As such, they were – now, this is not in the 1700s, but we're getting to say gutty golf. The uh, designated clubs for those eight, I'm going to give them to you. You had your play club, which was roughly 10 degrees of loft. You had a brassy, which was introduced in the 1880s, uh, which was 12 to 13 degrees of loft. And why brassy, by the way? Just out of that. Oh, I, I love – the brassy story is a great one. So there is some debate as to who invented the brassy. We won't go into that too much. But the idea of the brassy was – Back in the 1880s, uh, there were no, there were there was no such thing as out of bounds. So at Musselboro, one of the places that was designated as the home of the Brassy, you would be playing uh, Mrs. Foreman's Hole, which ran alongside a cobbled street, and often or not, a player would miss dead right and put it out into the stone the stone street. And so here we have this long shot into a very difficult green with a pub behind the hole. God bless them. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's one of my favorite places in the world. I, I'm literally, again, I hear all these references, but I surround my, myself with paintings and uh, pictures of my favorite stories. And right in front of me is forfeit at Mrs. Foreman's with the original uh, Mrs. Foreman's hole. So God bless her. That's yeah, a story we'll um, tell one day and it's a ripper, but let's not do it. Oh yeah, yes. it's a good one. Hmm. So, so you would take your wooden club and you'd hit it off this cobblestone street and it'd shatter. Mm -hmm. So, the idea of let's put a brass sole plate on it and let's give it a little bit more loft than a driver or a play club at the time. And so thus invented was the Brassy, 12 to 13 degrees of loft. So kind of a cool little story of mm -hmm. innovation beats uh, you know a difficult shot. And we put two together. We put a little brass on the bottom. And what that also did, by the way, probably unknowingly, was uh, elevated the ball because now all of a sudden you're putting the center of weight a little lower to the – obviously yeah. closer to the bottom of the club. And you get more loft than you would even see with the 12 to 13 degrees of loft. So your third club would generally be your spoon, which was a 15 to 18 degree loft club. And then you'd have my favorites. I mean this is why I love gutting golf. You'd have four irons. Right? You'd have your clique, which was 20 degrees. You'd have a general iron, which was 30 degrees. You'd have a lofter, which was 40 degrees. And you'd have your rut iron, which, by the way, may be my most favorite club in history. And that's another podcast altogether because we'll do the, el the uh, uh, evolution of the sand club one of these days. Maybe not in one series, but we'll, we'll do it in one podcast coming up. And then you'd have your putter, your long nose putter, and then soon to be an iron club. So you had these clubs, right? And and they were fine. And for you know from for the 1400s to like 1900, 
this was the standard. Like you just didn't need more clubs than this. And seven, if you seven? did, you were one, two, three, four. What's that? That's seven. Seven would have been. That's eight. So eight. I have eight, eight if you count seven. the brassy. Yep. Right. Uh, and sometimes a player would have two spoons. You'd have a baffy spoon, or you know, an evo- you know, an evolution, uh, uh, evolutionary, you know, byproduct of a spoon. So what happens is, as with so many, and another podcast by the way that we'll have to get into, is um, in the early 1900s we're introduced to what I like to call the ball that changed it all, mm-hmm. right? And that was the Haskell ball. And almost overnight, the Haskell ball added 30 to 40 to 50 yards of distance for every player, not the pros. It's not like the pro V one today where there's just discrepancy of, you know, the average driving distance of a common golfer is 220 yards. And on tour, it's well over 300 yards. There wasn't that everyone gained distance with the, with that ball. Mm -hmm. So let's do, I mean, just, I'm going to give you a very basic idea and this is what excites me. So now, and I hadn't really thought of this, uh, honestly, until last night when I was thinking about a 10 degree gap, in your irons with gutties was a 10 yard gap in distance, right? Mm -hmm. So now we have this Haskell ball where it's going, you know, call it 20 to 50 yards, 25 to 50 yards difference. And all of a sudden a 10 yard gap, a 10 degree gap in your irons was equivalent to a 20 to 25 yard gap in distance. So the new ball necessitated new clubs clubs. to cover the distance gaps. Uh Uh-huh. So all of a sudden, this ball, the Haskell ball, which, by the way, another podcast, how it changed architecture completely uh-huh. and changed the game and, and introduced the golden age of golf. We can get into that. It's so amazing. And I get goosebumps talking about it. But that changed that change in golf ball essentially invented or evolved the driving iron, the mashie, the mashie niblick, the spade mashie and so on to where seven clubs quickly necessitated into 14. And so. That's a simple reason of why all of a sudden you need, if you were going to go there, 14 clubs. But what's interesting from there um, is that necessity and opportunity, right, born a will to go beyond what was needed. So you call 14, that would be the math. The math would tell you that your 10-yard gaps would get you to 14 clubs. And I believe, I'll go into a little bit in a second, I believe the USGA factored that in as much as anything as to why we have 14 clubs. But what happened then so now we have this Haskell ball. It's going a mile. We have 14 clubs in our bag. Uh, the the uh, golf club iron business and wood business is in full bore, right? We have the great geniuses of like Tom Stewart and Gibson and uh, 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 Nicole building amazing clubs in Scotland. You have Spalding building clubs here. Um, you have Wright and Ditson. And they're, they're building, they're becoming like corporate conglomerates of sport because now we're not selling four clubs. We're selling matching sets. And these matching cl- sets have numbers. And these numbers are why we have numbers on our clubs today. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, with this birth of new clubs, you find pros that, I mean, let's face it, there's no regulation to how many clubs you can have. So what do you do? You're trying to gain an advantage. Sure. Why not have a club, Rod, just for chipping? Yep. Right? Forget your niblick. We're going to have a chipping club. And, you know, Rod, you, you hit your ball um, – maybe one out of every 10 rounds that you get in a bad lie where there's no way you can make a shot. So why not have one or three left-handed clubs when you're against a tree or against uh, a a stone wall? And you know what? Why not carry lighter and heavier clubs and maybe two-degree gaps between clubs? You know, within, within a decade, what really happened is things got out of hand. And within, you know, a decade and a half, 
Uh, I have this really cool uh, statistic taken by the USGA in 1935. So in 1935, the USGA counted clubs and players' bags for the U.S. Amateur and U.S. Open. And what they found was, and I, I, I'll be honest with you, I thought this number was low. I thought it would be a lot worse. Uh, but I'm going to give you some of the worst offenders uh, right after this. So the average number of clubs in a pro's bag or an amateur's bag at the highest level was 18. Wow. The highest, I believe, don't quote me on this one, but it's going to be really close. The highest, I believe, was Harry. Uh, now, I think now that we're going to say this, his nickname was Light Horse. Harry Might have been kind of an inside joke right there, mm-hmm. Cooper. He had 32 clubs in his bag. Wow. Now, we'll go this far. Apparently, his bag was weighed, and it weighed over 90 pounds. <laughs> so, how many caddies did he have oh. per round? Surely oh one gosh, bloke right? can't log, maybe, log that around. Maybe it was like a tag team effort, yeah. like you know, in professional wrestling, where after three holes, you'd tag a guy and he'd come in. Wow. So here I am. I, and now go to the historian and go to these tales that you've heard over and over and over, and my public apology is coming in a minute. Um, I've always heard that the biggest offender, he certainly was, there's zero doubt that he was, was a gentleman by the name of Lawson Little. Uh, Lawson Little is mostly forgotten. I think that's unfortunate. He won a professional major, but he also won what he really should be known for as an amateur known as the Little Slam. And not since uh, Bobby Jones, probably. Uh, In 1934 and 1935, Lawson Little won the U.S. Amateur and British Amateur in both 1934 and 1935. Oh, wow. okay. It's called the Little Slam. Yeah. Hardly anybody knows that. Yeah. What they do know, when they do know his name, is that he was known for carrying 25 to 30 clubs in his bag. Yeah. So, wrongfully so, and I'm, I'm publicly apologizing, uh, at least to the five people that are listening to the podcast right now, <laughs> my parents, thank you so much. And mine. Uh, but I am, <laughs> I am apologizing to the family of Lawson Little, because in my speeches in the past, I've called it the Lawson Little Rule. Not so. Not so at all. And I have it for fact. So I did a deeper dive. And I have the person to blame. Straight from the mouth of USGA President Harold Pierce. Right? Um, and I'm shocked put, I found this. I'm going to put a drum roll in here. Yeah. I'm going to put a drum roll for sure. There you go. Um, so... Usually when you do a deep dive into history and you're looking through archives and you're looking through, you know, Golf Illustrated and periodicals, it's really hard to find one answer. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard. It's almost impossible to find it from the horse's mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, USGA president Harold Pierce was quoted as saying, and not saying, I'm not going to go verbatim here, but he watched at Baltistrol, Walter Hagen walk out of the clubhouse with six woods and more irons than you could count. And that was the point. He literally pointed out Walter Hagen is essentially to blame for the tipping point and why we have 14 clubs. clubs. So so they decided they have to do something, that there's too many, and then they, I imagine, go into a period where they decide how many they're going to limit it to, and then we end up with 14. Yes. uh, As you say, probably based partly on that gapping. Didn't Jones have a a theory? Jones played with 14, and there was some theory that, well, it's good enough for Jones. It should be good enough for everybody. Yeah. There there are some of the great stories. And and I'll be honest with you. I think some or part of these is probably true. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we know, you know, per se what happened in closed-door meetings, or at least I haven't seen the notes. Uh, Bobby Jones, at the time of that ruling, uh, 1935, uh, was – 
thought to have played 14 clubs during his 1930 quest to win the Grand Slam. That is half true. Uh, again, we could probably go into this in another podcast, but uh, in the 1930, and this is where, you know, this is one of those those things where I think my wife would roll her eyes and say, why do you know that off the top of your head? It's one of those useless things. And funny enough, again, uh, because I love the story, I have a club right there in front of me that I'm going to talk about. Um, in uh, 1930, the Savannah Open, uh, Bobby Jones, I believe it was his first tournament of the year, was given a Walter Hagen concave sandwich uh, after the tournament to use in his uh, tour of the United Kingdom. And hey, er, um, Jones did, in fact, use, and to great effect, the Walter Hagen concave uh, sand wedge in the British Amateur, which he won for the first time ever uh, at St. Andrews. And it was said to have helped him on multiple occasions, including the road hole, um, road hole bunker, I should be specific. Um, and then at the, uh, the Open Championship. And then he came back to the United States for the U.S. Open and U.S. Amateur and kind of shelved the club. And the club was later it was banned literally the next year. Um, in 1931, which I could go into a different discussion, but we're going to save it. I just tweeted about it, um, I think, yesterday, and it's such a good story. It deserves its own podcast, so we're not going there. Um, but I think if you really look at it, again, going back to what I said before, I believe it was a matter of simple math. I think they were looking at, all right, four woods, nine irons, and a putter. How do we fill the gap that we had before the Haskell ball, which was a 10 yard gap, which I believe, and maybe I'm wrong. Most people today gap their irons by 10 yards. Yeah. That's most that, people. That that would be I know. Pretty, that's certainly what they're looking it's for. Pretty right? common. Yeah. Right? That would be, that would be and so I think it was really a, a, a designation of how many clubs would it take to gap between 10 yard gaps down to a, a essentially your sandwich. Yeah. Now what's interesting is they came up with the 14 club rule and you had, Oh, man. Of course, you had uh, Light Horse Cooper, um, Heavy Horse. Let's go Heavy Horse Cooper. I was complaining <laughs> pack, about it. Pack Horse had, Cooper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Broken Back, right? Yeah. Um, you had um, Tony Monero, I believe, said that, um, you know, play would be damaged and the tour would be damaged. Like, nobody can play with less clubs. Um, there were uh, tour pros that were upset that, you know, why did you choose 14 clubs? Why not 15? Why not 16? There was that argument, but my favorite one, again, Tony Monero. Um, Tony, amongst many, uh, was under the impression in 1934-35, and I think it was 1935, that the sandwich was going to be banned from the game as part of that ban. So, oh, I mean, okay. ah, you can imagine, imagine, right? Imagine that changes that, yeah, big time. Oh, changes a lot. I mean, it changes. So you think about it, Gene Sarazen um, – doesn't invent but popularizes the um, sandwich in 1932 after the Walter Hagen concave wedge was banned. Uh, so you basically had three years of um, folks knowing what bounce was and the appropriate way to use it out of sand. So now all of a sudden you weren't uh, looking to miss into the grass. You were looking to miss in the sand, mm. which you see today on tour, well, right? When they play the U.S. Open, right, right. you want to miss in the bunker. Yep. You don't want to miss in the rough. Um, and that was – really popularized by Gene Sarazen in 1932. So in 1935, there was this massive fear, which I just, I mean, I, I wish I could put myself in those shoes to mm. say, you know what? We're not going to have sand wedges anymore. You're going to have to play with a niblick and it'll have no bounce. And how are you going to react to that? Wow. And bunkers are bunkers again. Yeah. Darn it. 
you know? Well, and they stopped, probably stopped making So there was some fear mongering. The invention of the sandwich, in some ways, I suspect, leads to the manicured bunker. Because now you've got a yeah. club that you can play out of a decent line in the sand. The demand is for, you know, as all markets are, it's driven by demand. The demand is then for better services in the sand to allow you to use that skill. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's when you start to rake bunkers and take care of bunkers. You get complaints about bunkers where the sand isn't the same depth in all of the bunkers on the course. That all comes from the fact that you've got a club that under the right conditions can allow you to play a really good shot out of sand. So then you start to demand a better sand surface so that, as you say, you can then it can become a legitimate strategy to hit it into the yeah. bunker next to the green because you know that you can get it out and close. So these, these little things all sort of add up. I wonder what the reaction would be. Two things that I think about when you're talking about that, because essentially it looks like professional golf has sort of led this move, whether it's the professional golfers who are carrying 30 clubs because they've got caddies, and I can't imagine too many recreational players are lugging 25 clubs around the course because they're only making their own life harder. Um, what would be the standard number of clubs today if we still didn't have regulation on the tour oh, that, yeah. that would yeah. be interesting uh and then secondly i wonder what the reaction would be if there was a suggestion that they were going to ban the lob wedge on the professional yeah. tours which is akin to the the sandwich thing isn't it um well if 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 uh the folks were listening uh i believe rod uh just said that he wanted to also ban the sand wedge yeah. so hate mail <laughs> Rod Morey, uh, you know, we'll get him by a Twitter address immediately. You can send that hate mail to him. He's trying to ban the, everything. I, in fact, more have. Than I, in fact, have I, I, well, I, in fact, have suggested that I don't think the game would be worse off uh, without 60 degree clubs because, let's be frank, most amateurs can't use them and shouldn't have them. Uh, and most sure. pros can use them too effectively and shouldn't have them. <laughs> so <clears throat> I think there's a case to be made that the 60 degree wedge doesn't really add much to the game uh, <clears throat> in a whole lot of ways. There are so many, every time I talk to you, Connor, and this happened when we did the last podcast, that every single one of these issues has threads that come off it. It's like a ball of wool, isn't it? You could keep pulling at the threads and you oh. go to all sorts of areas of the game. But for today, I think we should probably leave it there because I've just had a look at the time. And frankly, if anybody's still listening, congratulations <laughs> to you. And I look forward Thanks, to getting Mom. <laughs> I look forward to getting it. Connor, it's been fantastic. It's always fantastic to talk about history. I said, too many people think it's not interesting. It is fascinating. And, and yeah. to think what the game could be, but for just a couple of small differences in direction at key times. Yes. Um, it does it. It, it. it boggles the mind. But it's fantastic. We're going to do this every month. So what are we at the at the third the third week of the month of January? So that's it. We're now locked yeah, in to the third week of the month from now on. And we'll see how it goes. You can sounds good. post this on the Facebook hey, Rod, site and we'll put it on Twitter. And it's going to be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. Hey, Rod, can I just say one thing before we go? Of course. So um, – this is really – it's been a, um, a cause that I've been after, and, and feel free to edit this out if it's, if it's going too long. But uh, today is Martin Luther King Day here in the mm-hmm. United States, and um, I think you've probably seen this before. I, I just want to put it out there because uh, I could use anybody who's listening to help to uh, help with this uh, recognition. Uh, I'd call this maybe 15 years ago. I started doing research on a gentleman named George Roddy. Uh, George Roddy was an African-American golfer in the 1930s, who became one of the first, if not the first, uh, collegiate golfer in the uh, NCAA, mm-hmm. and certainly the first African-American golfer in the Big Ten, before he played for the University of Iowa, my alma mater, and uh, was one of the great collegiate amateur golfers of his time. As a matter of fact, it was said that he never lost an individual match. Wow. That is and yet, staggering. he was never allowed. It's sta- I mean, 
1932. I mean, you just look at, you know, the history of the PJ tour and, uh, exclusivity of golf in that day. It's amazing. Um, but, and yet he wasn't allowed to play for the big 10 championship and the NCAA championship, uh, due to his race. And the only reason I bring this up is I've basically had a 15 year campaign, uh, to get him recognized, uh, first by the university of Iowa and the, uh, university of Iowa, uh, golf hall of fame. And, uh, then by the NCAA and perhaps the golf hall of fame at some point, uh, because I think his story is remarkable. Uh, he was the first uh, African-American uh, student of the School of Engineering at the University of Iowa. Uh, um, went through immense hardship, never lost a match. Just want to say my piece on Martin Luther King Day because uh, I'd sure like to see something happen for him to get his recognition. I think I've And it uh, has not happened to date. No, you've written about him before, I think. I, I remember reading I a couple of pieces yeah. that you have. There is a podcast episode. That's your homework. Absolutely. I'm not, not sure if it'll be the next one, but we'll occasionally choose the topics. We want the re- the listeners to choose the topics as well. If you've got questions, um, we can set aside a time in each episode to, to answer questions. So that's how we might do it. We might pick a topic and let's do a deep dive on George Roddy, and then we'll set aside 10 minutes at the end of that podcast to take listener questions, or maybe at the start. We'll see how we go. But that's the way we'll do it. So feel free to get in touch. You'll find Connor at at s historians uh, on twitter and me at at rod underscore mario i'll put all that in the show notes uh but connor it's been fantastic i look forward to getting some feedback from the listeners i'm really looking forward to my goodness <laughs> from the lewis i like that <laughs> i'm looking i'm looking to the horizon here and we're not going to ever run out of topics in fact i don't think we've got enough no. time to cover everything that we need to um so it's going to yeah. be very exciting i'm really glad that you've uh, you've agreed to take part and it's been great fantastic to chat today mate look forward to chatting again next month I agree. Thank you so much for uh, setting this up. I enjoy being the co-host as I marvel. I marvel at your talent. I don't say that as co-host, but your intro, I I listened to your intro and I was like, wow, that's pretty good. I don't know if I could do that. So that's so it's so good. Well, that's one. There you go. One person's listening to my intro. So that's uh, that's nice. That wraps up episode one of the new look talking golf. I hope you join us for the journey each and every week. We'll be back again next week to do it all here at the talking golf podcast. I'm never playing golf with him again.